Welcome to the latest episode of the MarTech Alliance Marketing Technology Book Club. I'm the founder of the MarTech Alliance and your host today. Today I'm joined by Richard Shutton to chat about his fantastic book, Choice Factory. Richard is an author, consultant, conference speaker, and trainer. He has over 18 years experience uh, working in the advertising industry. He's worked with brands such as Coke, Compare the Market, Halifax, Specsavers, and his speciality lies in finding behavioral science to marketing. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Good to meet you. Um, Richard, would you mind just kicking off? For anybody that hasn't grabbed a copy of your book, would you mind just giving us a little bit of a synopsis? Uh, so the book's called The Choice Factory. It's around how to apply findings from behavioral science to advertising. So I took what I thought were the 25 most relevant biases to marketers and brands. And then each chapter follows a pretty similar pattern. I quickly run through the academic evidence for that bias or finding. Then I do a little bit more on, look, here's the research I've done that shows that academic finding is relevant to the commercial world. And then the bulk of each chapter is practical nature, the application. What should you do differently now you know about the psychological findings? You know, how do you apply them to your pricing or to your creative? And, and the, the two, two main reasons I wanted to write the book were, firstly, I thought there was too much description of behavioral biases and psychology experiments and not enough about the application. So I wanted to address that. And secondly, I also thought there were lots of experiments that weren't talked about enough. People often talk about things like loss aversion and anchoring yet there was far less talk about equally relevant biases like the pratfall effect and um, price relativity that I think are just as relevant to marketing but get too little airtime. And what do you think is the most impactful? Obviously, you don't have to make a decision of one of 25, but um, if you were sort of ranking them, not, and I won't get you to go through one to 25, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but what, what, what do you think is the most impactful? First, I'll start with a bit of a caveat, which is I don't think there is one magic bias that is applicable in all circumstances and will be relevant to every single brand. One of the key findings after all in behavioral science is that um, context is remarkably important. So you've got to look at what is the particular client challenge and what is the, uh, the problem you're facing before uh, saying which bias might be or which experiment might be most relevant. However, that said... I do think there are a few biases that are particularly important. Probably my favourite, if you can, if you can have a favourite, is the pratfall effect. So this is the idea that people or products who exhibit a flaw become more appealing. So the original experiment was done by a guy called Elliot Aronson, who was professor of psychology at Harvard in the sixties. And in his classic experiment in 1966, he recruits. A group of uh, so he recruits a colleague of his he gets that colleague to take part in a quiz gives the colleague all the answers so the guy gets 92 percent of the questions right looks like a genius wins the quiz by miles but then as the quiz is coming to a close he makes a, a mistake what an american would call a pratfall a small blunder he spills a cup of coffee down himself so aronson then has recorded all of this he takes the recording and then he plays it to people and he either plays the entire incident or he just plays the great quiz performance. So he edits out the mistake. And when he goes and questions people about how appealing they find the contestant, people find the contestant significantly more appealing if they've heard the mistake as well as the great performance. So Aronson calls this the pratfall effect, the idea that if you exhibit a flaw, uh, either as a person or a product, you become more appealing. And I think we see this occurring amongst some of the greatest advertising some of the greatest ads take advantage of this 
Yeah, I think there's a there's a really interesting one I literally just picked up today. Um, I'm not sure yeah. if, you've, if you've caught um, Argus's latest campaign where they're recreating um, the Kim Kardashian's luxury lifestyle. Oh, no, I haven't. Who's done this? Uh, Argos. Ah, okay, okay, yep. It's fantastic. Um, they literally have mocked up somebody stood in one of their stores. Um, yeah. And, and like the the toy car, everything is fantastic. Definitely one to check out. Oh, look, look that one. I thought you were going to mention the um, the Carlsberg example. You know, yes, that's fantastic, uh, isn't it? Really, really fun. See, 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 the, I mean, Carlsberg's a fascinating one. So, so I think Argos is interesting because, and I haven't seen the ad here, so I might say wildly off key. What you often have, the practical effect, I think, is particularly relevant for brands who are about low price because most of the time in life, consumers think there is a trade-off. So they never believe you if you say everything about your brand is perfect. And the problem you have with any brand that offers a low price is people assume it will be poor quality. So often if you admit some other flaw, you can persuade people that you are both low price and reasonable quality. So, so one of the famous examples of that would be, or one of the recent examples would be TK Maxx. So they say the small prices you pay for the small prices you pay. Because I reckon what happened with their tracking is they... Everyone knows they're very low price, but what people will start to assume because it's low price is that the, the quality of the materials is poor. So what TK Maxx think have done very cleverly is recognize a brand will always have a flaw, but they don't want that flaw to be around the quality of their product. So they then go and admit that their weakness is in the quality and the experience of the store. You know, it's a little bit shambolic and chaotic within the stores. So it's, it's, it's a clever sleight of hand where they've almost shifted the weakness from quality of products to uh, quality of store. And I, I think that dis, that's a painful decision for any brand to make. But if you are offering very low prices, unless you go out and emit a flaw in an inconsequential area, the danger is people assume that your flaw lies in, a, in, in an important area like quality of products. Completely. And your, your book talks a lot about zagging as the world zigs. What do you think are the kind of the bold and the brave brands that are really embracing this? Actually, you obviously mentioned Carlsberg there. For anyone um, listening that isn't familiar with their latest campaign, maybe you could describe it for us and, and what you think is so compelling. Well, so, ah, so, so I'm a little bit... Uh, well, uh, actually, I'm about Carlsberg there. <laughs> uh, so, so the new campaign, that they have come out and both shared negative tweets about the brands, you know, people saying that it tastes like dishwater or uh, bathwater that your grand's died, I think was one of the uh, <laughs> tweets that they shared. Um, and then they've run a, a, a TV ad talking about the historic problems of the brand and how they've reformulated it. Now, I'm a bit uh, unsure about this one in that there was, it's a fascinating firstly example. Yes, they have used the practical effect. Yes, they have admitted a flaw. The only issue is whether that floor is too an important one. So there was a there was a twist to Aronson's experiment where rather than get, getting the contestant, his colleague, to get all the questions right, he tells him to get most of them wrong. So the contestant gets 35% of the questions right, loses the quiz by a long way, looks stupid, and then he makes the pratfall, he spills a cup of coffee down himself. Now, when Aronson goes and questions people about the appeal of that contestant, people think he is less appealing when they hear the mistake as well as the poor performance. What Aronson argued was to, to take advantage of the practical effects, you need to have a perceived degree of, of, of competence. Now, 
I would worry about the Carlsberg for two reasons. Firstly, you know, do they have that perceived degree of competence to take advantage of the Pratt Fall effect? And secondly, if you think about what the best brands do, you know, people like uh, VW, where they admit their car's ugly, Guinness, that their beer's slow. What they do is not only do they admit a flaw in an area that isn't crucial, they've also picked a flaw that has a mirror strength. So VW, for example, you know, the classic 1959 ad saying ugly is only skin deep. The point of that was to say, well, yes, we're ugly, but that's because we don't care about aesthetic fripperies. We care, care about engineering excellence. So they, they almost recognised that, you know, there was a, a, a mirror strength to uh, the, the weakness they admitted. Now, again, I'm not sure if Carlsberg necessarily are taking advantage of that. They've, have they got the, the perceived competence? Is there a mirror strength to that weakness? And then uh, the, the other part is, have they admitted a weakness in too important an area? Mm-hmm. Better to admit an area in, in, in an area. So, sorry, admit a weakness in an area that's not so consequential. So, that, yeah, there's a few nervousnesses about Carlsberg in, the, in that area. But on the positive side, you know, my God, it is distinctive. And I think we too often forget that the prime, probably the primary goal of advertising is to be, uh, is to be noticed. You know, most mm-hmm. ads are ignored. And this you know, ruthless frankness will certainly get, get noticeability for Carlsberg. And um, what brands do you think have possibly sort of lost their way with their advertising campaigns that they were possibly more impactful in a time past than, than more recently? Um, so, so in terms of lost their way, I think rather than individual brands, I think there's, there are some big areas where brands are losing their way. Uh, I think firstly, there's a, most brands, or a lot of brands, one of the classic mistakes they make is an, an over-reliance on uh, claim data. So one of the key findings of behavioural science is that what people say motivates them and what actually motivates them are different things. So there's a, there's a classic experiment by Adrian North in which he works with a, a supermarket and he persuades that supermarket to alternate the music they play in the wine aisle. So one period they're playing French music, you know, accordion music, whatever traditional French music is. The next period they'll play traditional German music, brass bands, umpa music. And then what he does is just monitor the sales ratio between French and wine sales, sorry, French and German wine sales. And when German music's playing, he sees that 70% of French or German wine is German. So 70% is German, 30% is French. And then when the French music's playing, he sees 77% of wine sold from those two nations is French, remainder German. Now that's a reasonably interesting experiment about the importance of environmental effects on uh, purchasing but the real interest is what he does next which is as people are leaving the store he finds out if they've bought wine finds out if they've bought french or german wine and then says to them why did you buy that wine and only two percent of people spontaneously mention uh, the music and even when he presses them uh, 86 percent of people deny flat out that the music had anything to do with their purchase so this is an example of saying that Timothy Wilson talks about. He says, we are strangers to ourselves. We do not have full introspective insight into what motivates us. Uh, it's not necessarily that consumers are lying. Wilson says, you know, they are confabulations. 
you know, people just make up plausible reasons to explain their behavior on the spot. And that I think is a, is a classic error that many, many advertisers uh, make. They go out and ask consumers why they do the things they do. And often consumers come back with very rational reasons for their behavior, very ethical reasons for their behavior, very logical reasons for their behavior. And if that information is taken at face value, then um, people can ignore a lot of the findings from behavioral science. I think, yeah, and alongside that, I think the other thing is, um, obviously we're in an age now where there's, there's so much insight and data available to us, but there's also a lot of vanity metrics. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And you can, you can paint your own story, right? Sometimes you, you see this where actually um, someone who's run a campaign needs to, needs to demonstrate their value and what they've delivered, and you essentially can extract the information that fits mm. that narrative. Absolutely. You've got so much data you can, I think, as you say, cherry pick. Uh, I think there are other problems that, um, that we have so much information that oh, the analysis, the, the, the time we spend analysing it suffers. Uh, there's a lovely quote from Herbert Simon where he says, uh, you know, he talks about how we're in an age of ever more information. And then he says, what information consumes is obvious. It, it consumes the attention of its recipients. So a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. And that, I think, seems to be uh, happening at, uh, in advertising, that we often base our approaches to advertising on the headline, not the actual data and the actual statistics. And then the final part, I think the problem with the, kind of the data we have at the moment, is that a lot of sources are quite new and people are missing sometimes the flaws in those data. So we, you know, I was talking then about the danger of claim data, you know, the danger of surveys and focus groups. However, even though they, they can send you off in completely the wrong way if they're interpreted incorrectly, if they're interpreted at face value, virtually every really good researcher knows those flaws exist in uh, focus groups and surveys, and therefore they go uh, to huge lengths to try and counterbalance them. I think there's a danger from more recent data sources that people assume that they are far more uh, representative uh, and therefore um, base their decisions unthinkingly on those data sources and, uh, uh, and then problems come from that. You know, one example, sorry, to make that less abstract would be you know, mm -hmm. social listening. Okay. Social listening has phenomenal problems around the representativeness of the data. If someone is commenting on a brand, they are not representative of most brand purchasers. They're the one tiny, you know, one percent who either love the brand or the tiny one uh, uh, few percent who hate the brand. They're people who have extreme feelings. The vast majority of people are completely indifferent to a brand, and therefore they're uh, silent. And if you take social listening data uncritically, I think again it can make you believe people care more about your brand than they actually do because the vocal ones are visible and the silent ones are invisible. From a, from a data perspective, I think the other consideration with, if you like, social listening is that it can be, you know, it's, it's great that we have got that insight and we've got some mm. extra insight. Obviously, it needs more context applied, but actually the sources available are predominantly Twitter. Um, so actually, there's then a bias to, to, the, to the medium or the platform. Yes. You know, LinkedIn doesn't open its API. Facebook's obviously um, attracted it, haven't they? Yes. Yeah. So essentially, you, you're you're overly reliant on 
a specific source which may not be representative to your point even more so of the actual buyer oh, yeah, yeah absolutely because uh, yeah, twitter is people know that this is a public forum so what they're doing is projecting what they want people to think they think rather than what they necessarily uh think now where i think though and, and, and i don't want to say that, that might, i might sound a bit too negative there the problem isn't necessarily the data it's the uncritical acceptance of the data and where you if we recognize the flaws then there is something wonderful about a broader range of data sources my, my, my favorite example have you have you read the book by Derek Thompson the Hitmakers? I haven't no oh, I've so definitely put it on my hit list though. so I think it was 2017 it came out my two favorite books that year were Everybody Lies by Seth Stevens Davidovitz uh, in which he criticizes data from Facebook and Twitter and talks about why we should use uh, Google and instead but I mean it's fascinating uh, and then the second one was a book by Derek Thompson called The Hitmakers and it was all about why things become popular but he has a little part of a chapter in which he goes and interviews an, uh, one of the senior engineers at Facebook and it, they talk about how they were misled by data so engineer says well we have the news feed the central aim of the news feed is to get people to spend as long as possible on there and we thought we had the perfect data set, which is we knew exactly what people clicked on. So we just optimized the stories they were served, because not everyone sees all their stories. We optimized the stories they were served to what they were most likely to click on. And, he, and then the engineer admits that worked brilliantly in the short term. Now people are spending more and more time on the newsfeed. But then after a month or two, or people suddenly radically reduce the amount of time they're spending on the newsfeed. And what they began to think was there was a discrepancy between how people actually behave and how they want to behave. So the fear was people clicked on items that they felt slightly guilty about reading, so listicles and, and cat videos. And so <laughs> after a while, they, they, they remembered the you know, newsfeed as being a you know, waste of their time and it was a, uh, uh, felt you know, it's like dirty about the experience. So what Facebook reacted, what they did next was they then went and surveyed people about what they would like to read. Now people come up with all sorts of uh, stuff that isn't necessarily true. You know, they might say, "Oh, I'd love to read about um, you know, the changes in Ghana and cocoa prices," or uh, "I want to read a long opinion piece about the life and work of Nelson Mandela." Facebook knew that people might not actually read, right? actually read that stuff but they then started interspersing uh, stories that they wanted to read and actually clicked on with stories that they thought they wanted to read but never actually clicked on and by having that mix of stories they made the newsfield feel like a more wholesome place and people came back to it more and more and i think that really nuanced approach to different data source using different data sources and understanding what each one told you accurately was a was a you know a, a kind of great example of how there is an opportunity from this broader mix of sources. Actually, you've just really reminded me of something very interesting here. Um, so one of my colleagues used to work for a very large media brand. And um, within her portfolio, she worked, she had a title which was essentially around um, men's fitness. So naturally, they were constantly trying to understand what's the best content that really resonates with the audience. And what they found is that where, where traffic really spiked was around content about sex. However, if they pushed that content out on Facebook, there was a really poor engagement rate because nobody wanted people to realize the content they were actually consuming. So, and conversely, they would have yeah. content around, you know, here's the, here's the latest approach to, um, you know, whether it's a bench press, for example, 
and they get loads and loads of engagement within Facebook because it's yeah. the image you want to push out of yourself, but actually people weren't reading it or they weren't reading it as, as, as frequently as, for example, the content around sex. Oh, that, 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 that's brilliant. That reminds me um, of a... I, the, the Guardian shared this bit of data. That I'm not sure they've still worked, but they used to have something called OFAN, which journalists would use to analyse uh, stories, who was reading what. And they, they gave a similar example to yours, which was a few years ago, the most, one of the most shared stories they had was around the uh, obituary of Nelson Mandela. But when they looked at the amount of time spent on that story, people you know, were on the page for a couple of seconds. So they're, you know, they, they're, their kind of analysis was, well, people are sharing this because it projects a certain image, yet they don't actually want to spend the five minutes it takes to, to read the, the long-form obituary. So those different data sources they have around the, the, the time spent on an article and the social shares are phenomenally valuable but as you say only if you interpret them as not the whole truth a kind of partial version mm-hmm. of the truth and if we know that i think uh, we can have much better decisions that we can make much better decisions about consumers but if we take it at face value it sends us off in completely the wrong direction and um mm. jumping back on sort of examples of of different brands right oh, now yeah. do, you, do you think who do you think really is sort of appreciating and understanding the, the, the power of behavioural science? Yeah. Well, the, the reminded me, I read a great um, uh, Rory Sutherland article again yesterday, and he was talking about many of the brands that we think of as being uh, technological successes are actually as much psychological successes as they, as they are technological. So a couple of the examples that he mentioned were things like um, Uber. So Uber, most people would talk about them as being a, you know, a phenomenal uh, tech brand, but part of their success is the simple application of well-known psychological principles. You know, the first one is there is a lot of evidence that known delays, as in I know I've got to wait five minutes, is a lot less painful than uh, an unknown delay, as in a don't have any idea about it. it might be two minutes it might be five minutes so one thing they do brilliantly is show you you know how long your tax is going to be and where it is on the map so masterful application of that simple idea and the mm-hmm. second probably more important one and an area i've done bits of research on is the more invisible you can make the payment the less price sensitive people become so there is a phenomenal difference between handing over a tenner and that money being automatically taken out of your your account and that, I think, is actually one of the biggest uh, reasons for Uber's success is that people treat it as if it's free because they never have to <laughs> hand, over, hand over cash. So, I mean, that would be a, uh, an example of, I think, a brand that is brilliant at applying. Well, it's, it's, it's almost brilliant at applying psychology. So I think those two things are excellent. Where I think it falls down is in search pricing. So... I can understand why they have to do it, you know, getting more drivers out at busy times. Um, but there is well-known work around fairness that suggests that people will punish brands, even at a cost themselves, if they think that brand has behaved unfairly. So the classic experiment in this area is by a guy called Werner Guth, um, and he created a game called the, the Ultimatum Game. And what he did was get two people, never met each other before, put them in different rooms, give one of those people a set amount of cash let's say 10 quid and then says that person look you can split that money between you and the other person any way you like 
So do you want to do five pounds each? You keep nine, give the other person one, up to you. Split it however you want. Once they've decided on that split, the offer goes to the other person. There's no other communication apart from what the, uh, the actual split is. And then the other person can either say, yes, I accept that money, or no, I don't accept it. And both people get nothing. Now, before Werner Guth did this experiment, classical economics or a simplistic view of economics would have suggested that people will take any offer. So if I have 10 quid and offer you, I keep nine, offer you one, classical economics would suggest you would keep that one pound. But Werner Guth found that that is not what happens. Most people will reject an offer uh, if they think it's unfair. So if I offer you less than 30% of the pot, most people will reject it, even though they know they get nothing. And what this was a, this kind of the start of experimentation around is the idea that we are hardwired to punish people who behave unfairly. Now, sorry, that was a long-winded way of getting to Uber, where that surge pricing on certain occasions, I think, will come across as unfair. And the danger is in the long term, people will take that out on Uber by stop using it or stopping using it or, or, or finding a competitor. Now, there's a, there's a brilliant, again, Rory Sutherland piece, a separate article where he talks about, well, the solution to this is quite simple. You know, give your regular heavy customers one chance to waive the surge pricing a year because the company can never know the reason for someone getting in the car. You know, they don't know if it's, I'm just on a, you know, taking the kids to school or, or going to a meeting, or I might be going to a funeral. If you've given me that one chance to waive the surge pricing, when it feels completely in, inappropriate, you know, you're taking advantage of me and need to get to the hospital or something, I can waive that, that surge pricing. And I think that would be a really sophisticated application of psychology in a way that doesn't decimate their, their margins. Yeah, I think that's a really smart idea. Talking a little bit more about um, your personal brand or your consultancy, yeah. are, are there any approaches that you adopt or is this one of those yeah. ones where if you do you can't tell me because it's going to no, 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 <laughs> uh so it's definitely ways i use it the company um probably shouldn't talk about this one but what the heck so the the, the i i'm getting more and more fascinated around the topic of um pricing so there's loads of work that people don't react to the price in a kind of mathematical manner of weighing up how good value it is but often reacts to the kind of plausibility of the, the 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 kind of offer or promotion so there are some areas in that that i've been trying to apply to to, to my pricing and the two ones that i think are simplest the, the very very simple one is there's um work from janice and i probably butcher these pronunciations janiszewski and use at the university of florida and they go to quite a lot of length to show that people assume round prices that is a thousand pounds or ten pounds are more marked up than precise prices, which is you know eleven pounds or ten thousand fifty, and the they they have a really smart way of testing this. They do loads of lab experiments, which are quite interesting, but then they go and look at a found data set, an observed data set, where they look at house prices in Alachua County, Florida, and how close the sale price was to the asking price, and they find that people are significantly more you're significantly more likely to get your get close to the asking price if you listed your house at a precise price so people who list their house at 501,000 pounds get get close to their asking price than those who list their house at 500,000 pounds their argument being that if you list a price at a round number people know it's marked up they know all prices are marked up 
and when they try and estimate what the real value is because it's round they they jump down in very large increments so they might go oh well you've told me it's 500,000 it's probably well 490 480 four, well, let's say 470 that's what it's really worth whereas if you've priced your house at 501,000 pounds people know it's marked up but they move down in smaller increments so they say oh well you've said 501 um, well maybe it's 500 499 let's say 498 so people go through the same readjustment but they jump down in much smaller increments so the thing i do with the pricing there is i never give people round prices always give them a precise number uh, so that's something very simple anyone could do i'm not going to push you on anymore i feel it's unfair otherwise <laughs> well, there's, there's only the one i wouldn't mind mentioning is and uh, is the, the the other one that i, I think is fascinating is um there's this idea of extremeness aversion so uh it says that look so there's an experiment by a company called Mountain View. And what they show is that people, when they are picking an option, work on a rule of thumb that the cheapest will be uh, poor quality, the most expensive will be overpriced. And again, they run a lovely experiment to try and prove that. They set up a bar where they sell different beers. So to begin with, they sell Carling for a pound, Budvar for two quid. About two-thirds of people buy Vodvar, one-third Carling. They then introduce uh, a cheap, awful lager. So they introduce Tesco Value Lager, 20 pence. And although no one buys Tesco Value Lager, the split between Budvar and Carling changes. So Budvar drops from two-thirds of drinks to 50%, and Carling goes up to 50% of drinks. So they then remove Tesco Value and start selling Cronenberg Blanc for four quid. So now Budvar is the middle choice. And in that circumstance, only 10% of people buy Cronenberg Blanc, the really expensive one. No one buys Carling, and 90% buy Budvar. So what they argue is, look, whatever is in the middle becomes more popular. And the, 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 it's, uh, I came across this reading, a wonderful book by Phil Barden called Decoded. Uh, so a simple thing, if you want people to buy your premium version, you know, let's say you're offering a basic package and a premium package, the way to encourage people to buy that premium package is not to necessarily change the offering and the uh, inherent internal characteristics of that offer. It's to introduce a super premium version because by the very act of it becoming the middle option, it becomes that much more uh, appealing. It will appear better value. So th those are two potential pricing tactics. Nice, helpful, mm. and practical for people to take away. Yeah, but those two, I mean, are very, very simple. Can we talk a little bit about brand purpose? You're cited in the drum as saying purpose is but a single tool available to marketers. If you only have one tool, you force all your problems to fit that tool. To a man with a hammer, every problem is a nail. That is the, the problem with purpose. The art of buying and selling things and creating good products is is now widely seen as unethical as an unethical career and try and make up for that by balancing with brand purpose. So, so yeah, I mean, there's a few, few elements that, um, I mean, uh, the first one is, you know, we, we touched earlier about this problem that there's so much data available to marketers that often the headline findings are believed without actually going into the analysis of the actual data. And I think that's what's happened with purpose. So one of my main issues is not necessarily a problem with purpose per se. It's with some of the studies that people use as evidence to support the idea that 
uh, having a brand purpose is, is, is the right thing to do for brands. Now, the study that I've looked at most is that of um, Jim Stengel. So he wrote a book four or five years ago uh, called Grow. And that's probably the bit of data that is most cited to support brand purpose. Now, in that book, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, uh, he takes the, he looks at Millwood Brown's database of brands, like 50,000 brands. He takes the top 50 brands, uh, so the top 0.1%, and then thinks, well, tries to find what is the common thread that unites all these brands. He finds that that's brand purpose. So he says every one of those 50 brands has a brand purpose. And what he means that is by a, um, a reason for existing beyond profit. So often people take this as kind of an ethical uh, angle to, to, to selling. And he then, once he's found those 50 brands, he then uh, looks at their stock market performance and sees they outperform the stock market by about 400% over the period he looks at. Now that keeps on getting quoted as, look, if you have a brand purpose, you will generate more profit. The problem is if you spend about 20 minutes going through the appendices and the methodology, you can very quickly see this is a very flawed um, study. And what I should say, actually, is, you know, I think hats off to Jim Stengel. You know, he, unlike 90% of researchers, shows his work, he shows his methodology, and which I think is something to be uh, admired. So, but when you go through the work, you see that there are a lot of flaws to it. So you see, for example, that what's being measured and what's being commented upon are different things. So, for example, what I mean by that is, he will say, you know, I've looked at these top 50 brands that Mill Brown have identified. One of them is Innocent. Uh, we, uh, they have a brand purpose. We know that brand purpose is successful because Coca-Cola's share price has gone up. Now, there is a bit of a sleight of hand there. Innocent is not the same as Coca-Cola's share price. So Innocent is owned by Coca-Cola, but it makes up about 1% mm -hmm. of, of Coca-Cola's revenues. So how can you seriously say Coca-Cola's phenomenally impressive share price over that period was due to 1% of its portfolio having a purpose. Now, that isn't just innocent. That happens again and again. Of the 50 brands he looks at, only 26 are um, the, the brand in question is the majority of the stock market holding. So you've got a problem, firstly, that a lot of the data is polluted. You've also got a more fundamental problem that actually the whole basis of the study is circular. You know, they didn't pick 50, they didn't find 50 stocks that had a brand purpose and then go and show they're really good in the stock market. They find the top 0.1% of brands as tracked by Millwood Brown and then say those have a, have a purpose. And then unsurprisingly, those brands have historically done very well on the, the stock market. You know, if they hadn't done well, in terms of sales and therefore stock market performance, well, they wouldn't be in Mill Brand's top 0.1% of brands. So it's a circular yeah. issue. And actually, once you start digging into it, that circularity is a massive problem because when you then go into the definitions that the brands adopt for a, a purpose, you see that they have been force fit. So mm -hmm. Moe, for example, the, the, the purpose they have is it turns an occasion into a celebration. And Mercedes-Benz, it epitomizes a life of achievement. Those definitions are so vague, you could quite easily fit them onto any brand. So the issue there becomes, well, if the 
terminology and the definition is so loose, it can be fit to any brand. Well, it's unsurprising that you managed that, 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 that a link was found between all these 50 brands. But actually, it, the definitions being used for brand purpose is not uh, in any way the same as how people actually use it. And then there are other are, are gripes, such as um, the, the, for a model to be valuable, it can't just explain the past, it's got to predict the future. And when I took the, those 50 brands and tracked their performance five years after the book's publication, they essentially reverted to the mean. Now, only nine out of 26 outperformed the, uh, the relevant stock market index. So you know, the fact they cannot predict the future suggests that this is a, a kind of dubious uh, approach. So, so the, one of the big issues there really was it's not necessarily purpose in and of itself. It's the robustness of the research used to prove it. Understood. Yeah. And, if, if the, and then the other bit, I think, which that quote comes across is like, like with so much else in life, sometimes purpose might be a sensible tactic sometimes it's not it my objection is the idea that there is this single solution that you can use in all circumstances now, anyone who works in marketing and thinks about it knows that brands have a huge variety of different problems so how can there possibly be one solution i think the reason that we accept this idea is that it's wishful thinking. We want it to be true. It makes our lives so much easier if we can just take a simple solution and apply it to every one of our clients. It makes our jobs much more efficient and therefore more profitable. That might have practical benefits, but we shouldn't pretend that it's the right thing to do or that it's an accurate uh, characterization of marketing. Just jumping onto a, a different mm. question for you. Um, for anyone sort of starting their career in marketing right now, what advice would you have beyond obviously take brand purpose with caution yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and there's other considerations um, and the importance of sort of contextualizing and understanding data and analysis and research what, what else yeah. would you be recommending right now so, so, so my biggest bit of advice and you might say well I would say that wouldn't I um, <laughs> would be if I was starting now I would immerse myself in knowing as much as possible as early as possible about social psychology and behavioral science and there is one argument well it is a very robust way of understanding what consumers uh, think and how they actually behave. But equally as relevant for someone's personal perspective is this stuff isn't going to go out of fashion. Social psychology is a discipline that's been around 130 odd years, started in the 1890s, and most of the findings are remarkably consistent. Now, because people's behavior has been shaped by evolution, it doesn't change from moment to moment, from year to year. So my argument is someone starting their career now would be look learn this stuff in 2019 and the day you retire in 2069 it will be just as relevant so it will repay the hard work and the effort that it takes to, to read about the topic that's interesting i saw um you'd you'd um and i'm going to misquote this one but you'd retweeted um a, a comment from jeff bezos oh yes yes which yeah. i think it sort of very much fits around um your description here which was around He's, he's, he's constantly asked what's going to change in the next 10 years rather than what isn't. Yes. And to that point of being that prices are going to change and convenience and speed of, of, get, of, of purchase is going to change. So if you focus on what's, what you know won't change versus what will, there's a real opportunity. And absolutely. And especially, yeah. It's very nicely. Yeah, that, that, absolutely. There's, a, there's another quite a love one by um, Bill Birnbeck. So the 
uh, founder of DDB, the guy who came up with uh, so many of the great 20th century campaigns, he said, uh, it's fashionable to talk about the changing man, but as communicators, we should be concerned with the unchanging man. And I always think that's a, a, a lovely quote about advertising, that it's very easy to fixate on what has changed, but actually the majority of stuff is consistent. And it, it's not that we shouldn't focus, we shouldn't have any attention towards the, you know, the rapid change of technology and, and other areas, but we've got to balance that out with as much time, energy and effort into, into those fundamentals. And I worry sometimes we get that, that balance wrong and put too much emphasis on, on, the, on the new and the different. And the uh, shiny new objects. Yes, right? absolutely. <laughs> yeah. One final question for you. Um, what new projects have you got planned? Is there anything in the making? Yeah, this is, a, this is very good timing. Uh, as of 9.30 this morning, uh, I launched the consultancy full-time. So a company called Astro 10. Uh, this is my first uh, full, uh, you know, full day work. Or full, full, sorry, full-time work. And I've been doing it part-time up till now. Uh, so that's one big uh, project I've got. I'm going to try and launch a consultancy that advises brands and agencies on how to apply behavioural science to marketing. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And the second bit is, yeah, writing a, a second book. So Choice Factory went down very well. Uh, I'm working on a, a second one at the moment, which will be another 25 biases that influence what we buy. So that, that's oh, currently in the fantastic. research phase. Well, I'd love to um, have you on here again. It'd be fantastic. Oh, um, love to come. Richard, it's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, um, really nice to chat to you, Carlos. Yeah, it's been really, really great. And, and I've got to say, I, I did thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy your book. I think it's um, to take something that's incredibly practical when it's an area that isn't your core, like myself, I think is, you know, is, is really, really interesting. Oh, and good, it's good. Stuff well, that, we're, that, that, we're trying was, to apply ourselves. Yeah, that was definitely an aim. I'm a big fan of uh, Dave Trott. And one of the things that he says that sticks to me, he, he says things along the line of, uh, our aim should be to make the complex simple, not the simple or complex. And I don't think behavioural science has to be complex. It can be explained simply. Uh, and that hopefully will help more and more people to apply it. Because the biases themselves are irrelevant. It's what we now go and, and do with them that matters.